Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to take a look at several areas of conflict and other international problems. My guest today is an expert on these topics. My guest today is Ambassador Kerry Cavanaugh, who is a retired, but he is a professor of diplomacy and conflict resolution at the University of Kentucky. He is also the chairman of International Alert, a London-based independent peacebuilding organization. He had a very illustrious foreign service career that focused on conflict resolution, arms control, and humanitarian issues. For 10 years, he was also the director of the Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky, USA. Ambassador Cavanaugh, welcome to today's Global Connections program. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I appreciate you being with me. We've got so many conflicts to talk about. That we could spend two days on each one probably. But now you teach courses or classes on conflict resolution, diplomacy, and nu nuclear weapons, and U.S.-Russia relations. Uh, this past year, what was, what has been, with what's going on in Ukraine and also with the, the North Koreans and just a variety of other places, you, you and your students have certainly had quite a challenge, have you not? Uh, we have um, the aim at the Patterson School is always to prepare students as best we can for professional careers in international affairs. Um, our graduates go on to be diplomats at the State Department, work on Capitol Hill, the Pentagon, in the intelligence community, and in the NGO world working on humanitarian issues. But, but this year couldn't have given them a more wide open window into the real challenges of dealing with international affairs. And every one of those that you mentioned, um, you know, conflict resolution, we've been teaching them, how do you avoid conflicts to begin with? Once you're in them, how do you deal with ceasefires and mediation efforts? Once they're done, how the NGO community comes in to tackle reconciliation. We've been dissecting that with the backdrop of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and, and what's going on there. At the same time, when we were talking about US-Russian relations, our, our students realized this is the pivotal relationship for the United States. There are a lot of things that we have to do with Russia to advance our interests in the world. There are a lot of things we will never agree with on Russia. And then we have to figure out the challenge how you moderate that. So they've been balancing that all as they're learning and add on top of that, as you mentioned, nuclear weapons and arms control. And, and another thing I teach, which uh, we just wrapped up last week is the course on international ethics, which covers rules of war, war crimes, um, lying, corporate misdeeds. And sadly, the year has been pretty full of all those issues too. We've certainly had a full plate. There's no doubt about that. That's for sure. You mentioned this 
really fragile relationship now and contentious too, uh, relationship between the United States and Russia. And it is critical. We have to work with the Russians. There are areas where we do actually agree with the Russians. We're working on the Iranian nuclear deal. Hopefully they agree on that. We're dealing with climate change. They're all different types of problems confronting us, but we do have to work together. How do you, what are some of the main components of your conflict resolution course that you bring to the students? You mentioned a couple of them, but what are some that you bring to, to get them to realize that we really have to cooperate and coordinate in many areas? Well, I think part of the challenge they learn is it isn't just war breaks out, you stop it. Um, this situation with Ukraine, uh, this has been decades in coming. There's a long history of tensions there, um, uh, international and non-governmental organizations have been active there for decades working with Ukrainians since the collapse of the Soviet Union, for instance. How do you improve your society? How do you get along with your neighbors? So you have that effort. Um, diplomacy comes in fairly large when those efforts fail in war, either is about to break out or breaks out. And then they've been looking at that engagement. How do you bring about a ceasefire um, when fighting is going on? How do you mediate it? And if we look at Ukraine, we can see that challenge already today. There's a real effort. How do you stop this fighting? And until you stop it, it's very hard to have a mediation of how do you bring about a settlement that both sides or all sides uh, would be comfortable with. Um, Ukraine and Russia tried this a bit uh, about a month ago. There was a fairly active uh, series of meetings going on between both sides, but as the fighting expanded, that, that diplomatic effort there became impossible. And, and as you noted, we need Russia for a lot of things. It's the one country that is an existential threat to the United States due to nuclear weapons. But we need them in things like conflict resolution. Um, you, you mentioned Iran. Yeah, they were a key party to making the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, functional. They were also a key party in the six-party talks with North Korea. They're a key party looking for peaceful settlement in the Middle East. And the list goes on and on climate change, um, Arctic exploration, and possibly opening a new trade route there, space exploration. You know, even as frosty relations came about between Russia and the United States over Ukraine, we still had astronauts and cosmonauts working together on the International Space Station. Um, so there's gotta be a balance at the end of the day where we still do a fairly wide range of things with Russia. Mm -hmm. There certainly has to be that balance. Uh, many foreign policy observers and others have suggested that we're heading into a new Cold War era, and not just with Russia, but also with China. Things are heating up quite dramatically with uh, the Chinese. Uh, do you see us heading into a new Cold War? Um, sadly, I use that expression too. And I think the, the merit behind it is uh, February 24th marked a sea change. Um, what was doable on the 23rd, a lot of things as Russia invaded Ukraine aren't able to be done the same way now. And, and we've seen a 
reinvigoration of concerns about Russian international behavior in a way we haven't witnessed since the end of the Cold War. And I think that's brought that back. We see a coming together in the NATO alliance of countries worried about basic security. Um, we don't see, as the older Cold War characterized, an even split globally where people are all picking one side or another. And in fact, in, in Europe, it's a solid, deep concern about Russia. But we see in Asia and Africa, many countries staying outside of this. They see the, they remember the old Cold War. Uh, they don't want to be part of that. They don't want to be drawn into proxy conflicts in sizable powers, India, um, Indonesia, South Africa, are taking no position on this dispute between what they see as Russia and Ukraine, but also manifest as a dispute between Russia and the United States. They certainly are trying to maintain neutrality as best they can, for sure. Well, often we think of, we hear, and, and it is, uh, I think, personally, the greatest existential threat we have is climate change. But Immediately right behind that comes nuclear proliferation. What recommendations do you have as to how we can deal with climate change? And what can we, or the United Nations agencies and other groups, the European Union, and anyone who should be involved, do to reduce the nuclear tensions around the world? Yeah. Well, I think both of those were very heightened concerns in the last administration that the United States wasn't supporting efforts to move forward on either one. Uh, President Trump had been uh, very hesitant about arms control. He had pulled out of agreements. He had signaled his unwillingness to uh, continue the START agreement, uh, the new START agreement with Russia. So the world was questioning US commitment on that key goal. And he also had pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accord. I think the new administration coming in um, brought people back to the table, seeing the United States was fully engaged. President Biden literally in the first week of the administration renewed New START, indicated a, a desire to continue talking to Russia about arms control. And, and we very quickly got back into the climate game. The dilemma is that has been knocked back on its heels by the COVID pandemic and now the new problems that have surfaced with Russia. Um, I think at the end of the day, we have to get back to a discussion with Russia and others. And we were seeking to expand that discussion already on what we do with nuclear weapons. And as regards climate change, it requires a global effort with everyone. And, and I think there no one can really stand aside and say, well, this isn't our concern. This is India's concern. This isn't Indonesia's concern and Brazil's concern and Russia and the United States. And the messages coming out of New York um, are disturbing in that we may be about to miss some of the milestones to be able to achieve the climate goals we need to to keep the rising temperature in check. 
it, it does look as though we're losing ground in that respect. And it, uh, it will, again, take all of us to be involved in this. Well, let's move into Ukraine a bit. Inevitably, in any war, it seems like there are always surprises, unintended consequences. Uh, what do you think are some of the major unintended consequences or surprises of this invasion of Russia into Ukraine? Uh, and has Putin given a new life or new lease on life to NATO, which before his invasion was really kind of fledgling around and didn't agree on, I mean, agreed on most things, but there were certainly, there was a lot of disunity among some of the NATO nations. But what were some of the surprises that you yeah. There have been several that they've been to both sides. Um, I think the biggest surprise to Putin was this war didn't go the way he expected it to at all. Um, it's clear at this point this uh, invasion was planned by a handful of people, quite detached from an understanding of the reality on the ground. Um, it's the danger of uh, when you start believing your own propaganda. But, you know, there was an expectation clearly among some in Moscow this would be a matter of days. The entire country of Ukraine would fall, that uh, they would be welcomed as uh, liberators. Um, none of those things were real. Um, that, that vanished quite quickly. And, and it is also clear the Russian military wasn't ready to carry out this exercise. The military leaders had been planning on a, a military exercise in Belarus, it's the normal kind, but had not been planning on an invasion. And when the order came to invade, they did what most militaries around the world do, salute and say, yes, sir, but they weren't able to deliver the goods. As the Ukrainians have fought far more uh, effectively and valiantly than, than anyone expected, and I think to the horror of Russia. The other surprise that came quite quickly was how quickly NATO coalesced, as you mentioned. He, he is really, by this action, breathed new life into uh, an institution that had a mission, but that mission wasn't as solid as it is today. And it goes back to that sea change that started in February. And um, we had stopped largely using the word West because it didn't have a clear meaning. Um, the use of the Western countries, Western response, you know, it had always been a bit questionable because Japan was in the West. Australia was in the West, even though geographically they're in the East, but it had largely fallen out of favor. European Union is a distinct thing. United States is a distinct thing. Countries in the European Union were distinct players. Um, I noticed that by the end of February, everybody's talking about Western response. Everybody is talking about what is the West going to do. He, he rebuilt in a matter of days what had been eroding away over decades. And to a point, it may be more solid now than it's been since the onset and the creation of NATO. And we see that by plans by Finland to apply to join NATO and a discussion today in Stockholm as well for Sweden to join NATO, both countries that historically have been neutral. That is certainly one of the greatest surprises to Vladimir Putin, I'm certain, because he certainly did not want Sweden and Finland to join. But when we come back, we're going to talk about that. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television. 
which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our shows, and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues. Today, we're taking a look at a wide range of international issues that could impact people all around the world. I guess this is an expert on these topics. Ambassador Carrie Cavanaugh is Professor of Diplomacy and Conflict Resolution at the University of Kentucky's Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce. Ambassador Cavanaugh, you, you brought up uh, Sweden and Finland. Uh, by the time this show airs, a decision may have been made one way or the other, but there's, there's a lot of discussion pro and con, especially Finland joining NATO. How, how do you perceive that? Do you think that that would be encroaching too much around Russia, or especially if NATO were to put weapons, uh, nuclear weapons or whatever, into, into Finland? What, what is your position on that? Um, I, I think the challenge here, and this has been a challenge for both the NATO alliance and the uh, Biden administration from the beginning, is how do you approach the line of what's too much and what's possible? And, and get as close as you can without going over it with a concern at some point in here, you risk spawning a larger war. Um, I think finish this session, Finland joining NATO would not spark that, but we are hearing this week already more belligerent statements in Russia about that. Finland has a border with Russia almost 800 miles long. It's significant to them. Finland historically fought Russia and actually inflicted fairly severe losses and was even fairly successful if you go back to World War II and earlier. So we find there, there have been times this corner has bothered them a lot too. Um, that said, I don't see a problem with pursuing it. I don't think NATO would move to put nuclear weapons there. It would fall under, due to Article 5, potentially the nuclear umbrella that protects all of NATO, but, but I don't think you would have that kind of placement. Russia has said, were Finland to join, it would put nuclear weapons in uh, Kaliningradskaya Oblast and along the areas near the Baltic Republics. And the basic response to that from our Scandinavian partners have been, well, they're already there anyway. So that's not a new threat, that's a, a current threat. But, but I do think, as you had asked about surprises, that this is indeed one of the surprises that were unanticipated. I'd, I'd like to bring up two other surprises. Yes, and, please. And one is uh, vital for students of international affairs. The other is just so disheartening. Um, let me start with the disheartening. And that was the preparedness of Russia to do on the ground what it has been doing in Ukraine, simply leveling cities. In, in one way, this shouldn't be a surprise. This was the approach Russia took, Moscow took, to internal resistance in Chechnya, 
truly the destruction of part of their own country. And we saw evidence of some of this in Syria when Russia was involved there. And we saw repeatedly in Syria bombing of hospitals. But there had been a hope that they had moved past that. Um, I think that got reinforced. The other thing that's emerging now, and, and it ties back to your question about climate change in a way, is the global interconnectedness of everything. Uh, Russia attacks Ukraine, fighting rages in the east and in the north, and now in the south as well. And, and the focus is, how do we deal with that? What can be done to help the Ukrainians? How do we encourage the Russians to stop fighting? But we instantly see the impact of that spreads across the entire world. Ukraine and Russia provide 25% of all the global wheat exports. Ukraine provides many other grains. And their key customers, uh, Russia and Ukraine's, Egypt, the Sahel region of Africa, uh, Lebanon, um, Indonesia, Pakistan. All of a sudden, we're looking at potential food insecurity spreading across the entire globe. Um, that kind of connectedness means we start moving monies away from development, aid, assistance projects, other conflicts on the military side to help provide weaponry for Ukrainians, on the civilian side to provide food and aid to other places. It all starts being focused on Ukraine, but we find global challenges everywhere. They didn't make the problems in Ethiopia disappear, the problems in Yemen, problems in Myanmar, and those need international attention from the same pool of people. So it highlights all conflict causes a global challenge that really hurts everyone. It certainly does. And we are certainly living in an interconnected world. There's no doubt about it. And you hear people talk about, well, we're going to be isolationists. We're going to retreat inward. It's not going to happen. It, you just simply cannot do it in today's world, in this modern high-tech world. And it's extremely important that we cooperate and try to focus on these problems and work on them together. Well, there's been a lot of confusion, and I won't go into great detail on this, but uh, there's been a lot of discussion as to the role of the United Nations. You brought up the UN before. Of course, the UN's been instrumental in focusing the spotlight on climate change and on many other problems, too. But we've seen over the past couple of months that the UN General Assembly, or the um, correction, the UN Security Council has been paralyzed because Russia is one of the five permanent members with a veto. And of course, any negative resolution or adverse resolution for Russia, Russia would veto it. But the United Nations has been paralyzed there. But there, the UN has been actively involved. The UN General Assembly voted to suspend Russia from the UN Human Rights Council, which was a huge embarrassment to Putin. You see that the there are several United Nations agencies like the UN World Food Program, oh, the um, UN Office Coordination and Humanitarian Affairs, UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund, the, uh, human, uh, the UN Refugees Agency, working with uh, over 5 million Ukrainian refugees, the UN International Atomic Energy Agency on the ground to try to make sure Chernobyl 
does not become activated or has some type of nuclear leak. But the UN has been actively involved in Ukraine, even though the Security Council has been isolated or paralyzed, as I mentioned. How important is it that we realize what role the UN plays, and as well as other organizations too, but in helping not only in this one spot, but in many other areas around the world? I, th- I think the list you just read off, Bill, underscores the importance of the UN and that it's always going to be a major player in dealing with these types of problems. Um, it's true the structure of the Security Council uh, limits the ability to act in, in a decisive way many would like to advance what is the core principles of the UN Charter. The UN is established to help preserve world peace. Um, At the same time, um, we see all the other instrumentalities of the United Nations, from the Secretary General using his bully pulpit. He was just out in Moscow and in Kiev uh, in the last few weeks, to every one of the specialized agencies engaging. Uh, Martin Griffiths uh, was just out in the region as well. Uh, UNICEF and UNHCR uh, responded instantaneously, setting up uh, operational needs to be met with local officials and authorities and institutions on the ground in Poland and Slovakia and Romania and Hungary and even Moldova, the, the entire swath of where we saw Ukrainian refugees fleeing by the millions. And there is no substitute for that. Uh, The UN is the player to do that in Ukraine. But as I noted, they're also the player um, to do it in Yemen and Ethiopia and in Myanmar. And and it does mean they need resources because they get finite resources for what increasingly seems to be infinite problems and challenges. And uh, I think it's often lost on people not in these areas, how engaged the UN is. And and I do know it's recognized, you see that by American European contributions to UNICEF, which as soon as UNICEF responded, those contribution levels just start soaring because there's a recognized need but it's often easy to lose sight that all these pieces of the UN uh, puzzle, and there are many, it feels like a puzzle to, to some, um, have to get involved and have to help. IAEA, no one had expected Russia to be so cavalier as to not be very careful when you're bombing and launching missiles around nuclear power plants. You know, we saw the damage that Chernobyl caused. Uh, back in 1985, we can't afford that again. And uh, UN, IAEA, goes in and helps work on that. It certainly does. And that's why we have to learn more about an organization that's still the epicenter of the world by bringing all the countries of the world, or most of the countries, together to deal with these problems. The UN is not perfect, but there's no other substitute for it. Well, Ambassador Kerry Kavanaugh, I'm sorry we're out of time. I wish we could continue on, but I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. You're welcome. It was great talking with you today. Thank you. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television. Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program 
The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.